How's everyone? Good. Good to see all of you. Welcome to First Calling Christian Church this morning. My name is Mike Skinner. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. We are glad to have you. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to open up with me to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15 is where we'll be this morning for our sermon. We are right at the end of a sermon series on the Gospel of Mark, where we have spent over a year walking through the Gospel of Mark. We have three Sundays left, including today, so just two after today, so we're coming towards the end. At the end of November, on November 29th, we're going to start up our Advent series called Christmas Playlist. This is this kind of a twist off Finding God on Your iPod, but Bible Christmas style. Um, so in the Gospel of Luke, you have four songs early on, uh, the first few chapters of the Gospel of Luke all around the baby Jesus and the Christmas story. And so we'll walk through the different playlists, uh, the songs that we have there from Christmas time. And that will be our Advent series. As we prepare for the birth of Jesus and celebrate that birth. Um, although today, as we come to the end of Mark, we're at a different time in Jesus' life. Um, one of the more significant events that perhaps has happened in history uh, in, in Jesus' life as well, uh, as we come to... The passage that we'll read this morning where Jesus is crucified and he dies and he's buried. Um, if you've been with us, you remember last week we left off. Uh, Jesus has um, been on trial in front of the Jewish authorities uh, and the Roman authorities. Peter denies him. And this morning we come to um, the crucifixion. Now, uh, yesterday uh, afternoon I was invited to come and speak at a funeral uh, of a young man that I didn't know who had been murdered. Um, in South Houston a few weeks ago. Uh, uh, one of my classes at Houston Baptist University, I've got a, a lady in my class, an older um, older lady. I don't know. She's an adult, okay? Uh, she's, that's old to me. Are you an adult? Okay, you're older than me. Um, who a couple weeks ago came to me and said, my nephew's been murdered, and so, right, and I'm not a pastor or anything, but you know, I'm praying for you and let me know if there's anything I can do, and I've been able to pray for her a couple of times, and, and she was telling her sister, I guess, about uh, the support she's felt, and so her sister called and invited me to come and speak at his funeral. So it's kind of an odd thing, you know, I didn't know him, uh, to have the presumption to speak at a funeral for someone that you didn't know, and I was there yesterday, and, and the room was packed, this young man uh, had been killed, and, and it's, I mean, it's a grieving room, right? So there's people just crying and weeping, and then lots of stories about what kind of a person he was and the legacy that he lives behind. Um, and, you know, it's tough watching people grieve. Grief is one of those things that's almost, in a sense, contagious, right? Um, you see someone cry, and your first instinct is to, you know, you start welling up a little bit yourself. Uh, even if you don't know why they're crying, you don't know the person that they're crying about, that kind of thing. And it's tough watching people grieve, particularly when there's that disconnect in the, right? You don't have that same emotional connection um, to the source of grief. And you get to a point where you realize there's not much to say when something evil's happened, when death has truly been experienced by a person or by a group of people. Um, you know, there's, there's a sense in where silence maybe should reign, where we shouldn't speak too much. And as I was sitting there before and after and during the funeral, I kept thinking about this passage that I've been studying all week, where Jesus dies, um, where he's buried. And I thought that, that, you know, as familiar as the story is to some of us, 
and as much as there is maybe that we would want to say about the story, maybe sometimes silence is better. Maybe sometimes we can say too much. Maybe, maybe Jesus dying, maybe the Son of God dying on a cross, is such an enormous act that it would be very presumptuous to be able to claim to know a whole lot about what was happening. Instead, we, we, we witness it, we watch, we remember. And so we are, this morning, going to look at a text that narrates the story of, I think, the center of human history. The way that the sun kind of pulls down uh, on the axis of existence and all the planets kind of go around in gravity. I think that's how this day works in human history. The rest of history, all of humanity, kind of circles around this one day um, where this huge cataclysmic um, event happened. Um, we'll look at it, and, and I'll, I'll comment on a few things on it, um, but I'm going to try not to say too much uh, this morning because um, someone died. Uh, and there's, at a certain point, there's not too much you can say uh, in the face of death. If you'd read with me, Mark 15, verse 21. They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry the cross. So finally, someone's carrying the cross. It's not the disciples. It's a stranger from Cyrene, North Africa. Um, Alex and Rufus, uh, Mark doesn't explain who they are. Most likely, scholars think they're part of Mark's community he's writing to. Um, so again, he's been very specific with locations, and now... Um, Again, the most likely guess is Alex and Rufus are probably hearing this with the other people who are getting this letter. This is a real event that happened in real history. This community knows where it happened. They're, they're fully aware of what happened. To carry the cross, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the school. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved himself, or saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. There were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. This is the first time we're told of these women disciples um, who don't abandon Jesus. 
Um, women have a very high place in early Christianity and in the Gospels. All the male disciples abandoned Jesus. The women stick with them. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was indeed dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Once again, I think Mark in this narrative is trying to communicate to us the truth that the cross is not a detour on the way to Jesus being installed as the king of the universe. Remember, Jesus comes in the Gospel of Mark saying the kingdom of God is at hand. God is coming back into the world to make things right again, to bring his will on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus claims to be that king. And throughout the Gospels, the temptation has been between Jesus and even his disciples and others, how that kingdom is going to come. And Jesus says, it's going to come through suffering. It's going to come through suffering. It's going to come through suffering. It's going to come through self-sacrificial love, through patience. It's going to come through my own death. And the disciples don't get it, and others don't get it. And here, once again, we have Mark, I think, narrating for us that the, the cross is not a step out of the way um, for Jesus to be king. Um, the cross is indeed the way that he becomes the king. The cross, his death on the cross, is his victory over all the things that he has come to save his people from. This is in the story in, in lots of different ways. Um, you can look on his right and his left, we've got robbers. The, um, the Greek word there is a specific one, I think maybe better translated bandits, um, but it's not the word used for common thieves. Okay? Um, this is the word used for insurrectionists um, and a specific type of revolutionary, we might call like a terrorist, who controlled the wilderness in Judea. Um, so they kind of had control over some of the wilderness areas. The Romans, for the most part, left them alone, right? They didn't need that land or that area. But every now and then, they'd get in trouble, uh, or kill a Roman or two, and then they'd get hung up on a cross, right? So that's with Jesus on his right and his left. Now remember, though, Mark's doing something here for us. Um, we, we should have a passage from earlier on in Mark echoing in our head. When the disciples asked Jesus to be at his right and his left, Remember this, James and John, two of the inner three, come to Jesus and they say, when you come to glory, when you're installed as the king over the world, can we be on your right and on your left? And Jesus answers them very cryptically. He says, you don't know what you're asking. I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure. I want the power. Right hand, left hand. And he says, no, it's going to involve drinking a cup and being baptized with the death. And he says, and while you'll eventually drink that cup, you're not going to be there with me on my right and my left. What if, when Jesus is placed on this cross, so the, Mark doesn't give us a lot of details, doesn't seem to be the main concern of his narrative, but also the original readers would have been pretty familiar with the crucifixion. It's a pretty nasty way to die. The vertical beam probably would have already been there. You carry the cross beam. All shame and dignity is taken away from you. So this is not our very respectful Western representations of Jesus on the cross. Okay, he's naked, he's beaten. <laughs> Bodily fluids probably everywhere. Um, unless they wanted to do something special, most crucifixions were actually 
not probably how we imagined them. Um, they're probably only a foot or two off the ground, if that. Um, close enough to where the animals could start to eat away at you. And normally that's what would happen. Wild dogs would start to eat away at your flesh. Usually before you die, it's a few days usually before the death happened. Medical people debate back and forth about how exactly you died on the cross. And it probably was a lot of different individual ways, depending on the circumstances. Jesus seems to pass pretty quickly because of all the experience, uh, torture he's experienced so far, unable to carry even his own cross um, to the place where he would be crucified. But Mark's trying to, to get us to understand here that, that when they nail him down and, and when they put him in the post, that this is actually the king. And notice, again, for the final time, the temptation's there. Get down off the cross. Save yourself. And you'll notice they even say, so that, in verse 32, we might see it and believe. And I think they're being honest. I don't think they're, they're being sarcastic here. I think they're holding out a small chance of hope. Maybe this man really is the Messiah. And maybe this will be like the best underdog story ever. Right? Maybe instead of not fighting until he got arrested, or not fighting until after he was tortured and, and that kind of sentenced... Maybe he's going to do this after he gets nailed on the cross. How dramatic would that be? He's on the cross, and then he comes down. And I think they'd believe. I think jaws would drop. They're like, wow, what a king. And Mark's trying to tell us he doesn't come down from the cross precisely because he is the king. This is the type of king he is. This is the type of kingdom he's bringing. He's the crucified king. He's not the king who's come to rule by force. He's the king who's come to rule through love, to defeat death, but by dying. You'll see the centurion after Jesus breathes his last, the curtain in the temple is torn in two. He says, truly this man was the son of God. Um, this is actually the third time that phrase is used here to identify Jesus. The other two or in the baptism event, Benny and Mark, and then the transfiguration on the mountain. Um, three huge events in Jesus' life uh, where Jesus identified as the Son of God. And if you remember from very early on in Mark, one of the big themes in Mark is Jesus' identity. People um, mistaken, uh, mistake Jesus' identity over and over and over again. They have no clue who he is. Um, and really the only people who usually know who Jesus is are the demons in Mark's Gospel. They're the only ones you can consistently count on to get it right. Even when Peter says, you are the Christ, he then proves he doesn't really understand what it means. No one seems to get who Jesus is. The first sane human being to correctly identify Jesus does so the moment after he dies. How do we know that this is the Son of God? It's not because he got himself down from the cross, did some spectacular show of power, military might. It's when his life had been given completely. We only recognize Jesus when we recognize him looking at his death, looking at the cross. This centurion, who's probably got a coin in his pocket with the face of Caesar on it that says, Huios Theo, son of God. He looks at this young Jewish man who just died on a cross and says, this was the son of God. Theologian named Moltmann once said that Jesus' death here is either the Christian end of all theology or the beginning of a specifically Christian theology. 
Let me say that again. It's either the Christian end of all theology, or it's the specifically Christian beginning of theology. Which is to say this. When Christians claim that Jesus, the Son of God, dies here on the cross, we're claiming things that should not be claimed about God. God does not suffer. God does not die. The Son of God should not suffer. The Son of God should not die. And yet, this is what Christians claim here. Either this, is, this story makes us stop talking about God completely. It ends theology. Everything we thought we knew is wrong. There's no point anymore. Or we reconfigure what we've thought around the story. What if this really was the Son of God? What if he really is like this? What if he did come to die? What if his kingdom comes in this way and in this manner? Now you'll notice the cry on the cross. So Jesus yells out in verse 34. The ninth hour, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Loi, Loi, Lama Sabachthani. This is Aramaic. The language Jesus spoke. Mark translates it for us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, While Mark's narrative, I think, tells us and wants us to see the cross as the moment of glory for Jesus as a king, um, Jesus' cry from the cross, I think, has a lot to teach us as well. Unfortunately, I think it's one of the more confusing and misunderstood parts of the crucifixion narrative, particularly this cry. Jesus says a few things in different Gospels when he's on the cross. In Mark's Gospel, this one, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And often what we do is we take this phrase and we uh, isolate it by itself, and we just have it from Jesus' lips with no kind of context or anything like that, and then we put it into a formula, like a machine, to try to understand what's happening um, on the cross. And so this is how I grew up. This is how it was explained to me. It was a very neat, very nice little formula. Um, what happens here is right before Jesus dies, God counts all the sin of humanity onto Jesus. And because God can't look at sin or be in the presence of sin, God now turns his back on Jesus. And they're separate. He experiences what we were supposed to experience. And that's why he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I have, I have questions about that formula. Really about all formulas, right? Anytime we try to fit God or the cross into a box, we're probably going to run up against walls where it doesn't, it doesn't fit. My first question is, when or why or where do we get the idea that God can't look at sin or be in the presence of sin? Um, I mean, I really want to, want to ask where that comes from. Um, and I can tell you the two Old Testament verses where it does come from where people get it from. Um, you know, the, the biggest is Habakkuk, where Habakkuk says, your eyes are too holy to look on sin, so why are you letting all your people do these kind of things? The idea in Habakkuk and in these Old Testament passages is not that metaphysically somehow God is incapable of seeing sin, like, like some sort of like, you know, how dogs can't hear certain sounds. It's not that kind of a statement, right? It's more of a, you shouldn't be happy with all of this sin, right? So why are you allowing it to occur? Um, if God can't see sin, I would have to imagine everything is a surprise to him at this point, right? He hasn't been able to see anything that's happened on earth. Um, if he can't be in the presence of sin, I mean, what hope do any of us have? If we take Jesus as truly God, Jesus seems to go directly to the presence of sin. He goes and hangs out with the sinners. He wants to be in their houses. He wants to be around them. He doesn't set up this wall of exclusivity. Um, 
And then, you know, Jesus, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You've got to remember, this is a question. It's not a statement. So, so, so we've got to work through here. What, what's going on? Because I do think something profound is going on in the life of Jesus and in the life of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit uh, on the cross um, when he cries this out. Um, the first thing I, I'd want to point out to you is this. I have no formula I can give you for it, but, but perhaps I can give you a couple things to, to help you think through um, the depth of this cry on the cross. The first one is, notice that while Jesus is saying things about feeling forsaken, and feelings, right, are different than necessarily reality, um, his words and his actions betray his belief that he's not actually forsaken. How does he address God? My God, my God. Hello, I, hello, I. And he says, why have you forsaken me? He's praying. You don't pray to someone who's disappeared from you, Right? By his actions, by praying, and by the words he's using, my God, it's personal. He's betraying the belief that he's, he's not, whatever's happening, he's not been left alone by God, the Father. Um, the second thing we need to realize is this here is a quote from a psalm. He's quoting here from Psalm chapter 22, verse 1. This is not Jesus just pulling from within himself out of an emotional experience and coming up with some words to describe how he's feeling on the cross. Um, he's quoting uh, the first verse from a psalm about the Messiah, about what the king would do uh, of Israel. So um, if you uh, have your Bibles, hold your finger here. Flip with me to Psalm 22. I want us to read this psalm together. Psalm chapter 22 is the quote here. Mark actually references the psalm, Psalm 22, multiple times in the story. We'll see the references. He's making it very clear for us that we understand what's happening to Jesus is a fulfillment of what was prophesied in Psalm 22. Jesus is king. You'll see in verse 1 very familiar words. It's a very important messianic psalm in the first century. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy. Enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Remember Mark's narrative. People are wagging their heads at Jesus. He trusts in the Lord. They quote, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Also, it really sounds familiar to what Jesus heard as he hung on the cross. Yet you were the one who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening, roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. 
They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Here again we see echoes of Jesus' crucifixion. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. Or you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Notice he starts with the question, why have you forsaken me? And he comes to the conclusion, come here, don't be far off, come and rescue me. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And then he says, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. It starts as a psalm of abandonment and it moves into a psalm of rescue and praise where he realizes God hasn't abandoned him and yet has come and heard his cries and rescued him. And now he leads the congregation and praises. I'll tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I'll praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Why have you forsaken me? Becomes he has not hidden his face. He has heard my cry. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I'll perform before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship rule belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him, and it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. So, when Jesus, on the cross, dying, yells out, He's not just reaching inside of him to what he's experiencing in the moment. He's quoting a very well-known psalm. Um, and oftentimes, in the ancient days and even today, even more so, I think, in, in ancient times, um, when you quote a, a song or speech or important story, you reference it, what you do um, is you're actually, it's called metalipsis, is the scholarly word for it. You're invoking the, the whole rest of it, even though you might not say it. Does that make sense? Um, so many people believe Jesus here on the cross, actually, he, he, he's not trying to get you just to think through that one line, Right? When he quotes Psalm 22.1, he's trying to bring up this whole psalm to you, which ends in praise, which ends in victory, which ends in God's kingship being established on the earth. Some have taken that to mean that Jesus, when he quotes this, he's not actually sad here. This is a cry of victory on the cross. Um, now, I think that might be a little too far. I think Jesus is feeling the abandonment. I think he is feeling this sorrow. But he studied the psalm, and he has it ready to quote. He knows how it ends. Everyone else in the audience knows how it ends. Why have you forsaken me? He quotes this psalm. What's happening on the cross? Is God suffering? Does God die? As Trinitarians, as Christians, we can be much more specific and we can kind of avoid some paradoxes. We believe God is threefold. There's three persons to God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Christians have always been, from the very earliest um, times, very strong 
and, and very bold about saying, whatever happened to Jesus happens to God. Jesus is God 100%. There's no God outside of Jesus. So when Jesus is tortured, God is being tortured. When Jesus dies on the cross, God dies on the cross. But at the same time, they've been very careful um, that we distinguish between the persons of God. So God the Son dies on the cross, but God the Father is not killed. God the Father is not crucified. God the Father wasn't flogged. God the Holy Spirit wasn't as well. Which is why there is this feeling, perhaps, of abandonment, forsakenness on the cross. The Son has given up his life. And he asks where the Father is. While the Son gives up his life and experiences pain and suffering this way, while we say with certainty the Father does not die on the cross, we should probably say that the Father suffers here as well, though. His suffering, though, is of a different kind, not a physical crucifixion. The Father here is suffering the loss of a child. I was at a funeral yesterday of a family who had a son murdered. And I was able to look at them and say, I think the Father knows what that experience feels like. And it's in that giving upness. Notice the Father and Son are doing the same thing. The Father's giving up His Son. He's letting Him be killed. And the Son's giving up His own life. And the Spirit as well joins in on this work. And though they are distinct persons, experiencing distinct things, it's in that giving upness. It's in that self-sacrificial love that they remain united. The cross is, I think, the deepest moment for you and I to experience the love of God. To experience the love of a father who would give up his only son. To experience the love of a son who would voluntarily lay down his life. To experience the love of the Spirit spirit of that love. We have to, I think, realize as Christians that this is not the end of the story. And I say that because I was at a funeral yesterday and most of the things that were said about this young man unfortunately are things that people are saying about Jesus this morning. He'll live on in our hearts. Right. We'll honor him and, and honor his legacy by the lives that we live. We'll make sure every day counts. Um, you know, his, his memory will go on. He'll always be with us. We'll never forget him. Um, I've said this before, we've been here at FCQ. As, as Christians, spoiler alert, um, Jesus doesn't say dead. Right? I mean, this, this prayer of abandonment, this, 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 this prayer is answered. The Father comes. And he says, no, come back to life. The father comes and raises his son from the dead. That's how all scripture rephrases it. The son does not raise himself. He cries out to the father and gives his life up. The father allows him to do this and then comes back and takes him and raises him back to life. And church should not be a memorial service. We shouldn't be saying the same things you say at a memorial service. We shouldn't be acting the same way we acted at a memorial service. Even now, on a day where, where our text is just Jesus' death, it's, it's hard for me to finish a sermon without mentioning 
Um, it, he's alive. It's kind of why we're here. He's alive today. He's still alive. He's moving, doing. His desires for you and I. We're, we, we don't come here to tell stories about a guy and, and kind of try to remember how great of a life he had and, and memorialize him as a martyr. We come to worship and follow and get instructions from our risen king. Now, how did he become our king? What kind of king is he? Back to the cross. The cross is his glory. It's by death that he defeats death. The kingdom that we're called to live into is a kingdom where we're called to serve. We're called to deny ourselves. We're called um, to follow that path of glory, not through power triumphalism, but through service and perhaps suffering and death. And on the cross, I think we see the, the depths of the love of God displayed for us in a way perhaps nowhere else it's ever been displayed. While the Son is crucified, God, Father, Son, and Spirit pours out their heart, the heart of love part of giving. That you and I would be saved, that you and I might experience life, that you and I might be reconciled back to the family. And so this morning as we we worship, and this morning as we, we dwell on, on this text, I, I pray that the Father would cement it in our hearts that this is how Jesus became king. It was through the cross. Um, Jesus, um, after he's resurrected, is none other than the crucified king. He's the slain lamb. He's always the crucified king. Crucifixion is not a sad moment in an otherwise victorious life. Even as he reigns, he reigns as the one who was crucified. He reigns through his crucifixion. And I pray that, that we would see him dying we'd realize the pain of the Father and the death that the Son experiences and the unity of love that's motivating all of that toward us. And I think there's no deeper place for meditation here. And then I pray that, it, that even when we're focusing on Jesus' death that we would realize that Jesus doesn't die like you and I die. We don't remember his death like we remember other people's deaths. Um, we, we remember and recognize that he's alive, and he's resurrected, um, and that you and I are called to follow him as he leads us forward into the future. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for our time.